Amen. So we are jumping into a series that will carry us from now until Easter on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' instructions here found, uh, collected for us in Matthew's Gospel in Matthew 5 uh, through chapter 7. The passage that we'll consider this morning might be the most familiar to many of you uh, by virtue of the numerous kid songs that accompany these themes and the stickiness of the images that Jesus uses. And for that reason, it may be a bit easy for you to go on autopilot this morning. So let me jar you out of your autopilotness this morning, and let's hear a fresh Jesus exhortation to his disciples, his first followers, to be salt and light in the world in which God has placed them. As we enter this text in verse 13 this morning, we note what we've attempted, the ground we've attempted to lay thus far from the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 4 has come on the scene and his address, his entry into the world has been repent because the kingdom of heaven is now here. Everything that the people throughout the Old Testament had longed for in a king, perhaps best embodied in King David, the hopes of the people that there would be peace and prosperity and blessing and God's favor, the realization of the promises that God had made so long ago that they would be introduced through King David. But as we know, the story of Scripture plays out king after king after king proved to be big letdowns. They never inaugurate God's kingdom the way it was intended to be, and the kingdom divides. It splinters under Solomon's two sons, Nation splits, and over time the people of God are sent into exile, captured by the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and by the time we get to books like Daniel, we see the people of God scattered, living without a king in a foreign land. Fast forward to the end of the Old Testament to the book of Malachi, and you have this splintered people, a few who've been allowed to return back to the promised land under leaders like Nehemiah and Ezra, and they've begun to rebuild the temple, but it's been a fledgling effort Prophets like Haggai are going to warn the people. They come back and they've rebuilt the temple. They get the foundations laid, but like for 15 years, they run off building their own houses. And the prophet's like, what are you doing, guys? You were called to go back to the land and rebuild that, the temple that's been destroyed, and you're just running after your own things. The end of the Old Testament is pretty anticlimactic. People are scattered, fledgling. The kingdom is surely not here. Fast forward 400 years, end of Malachi, we've got 400 years of silence, Matthew's gospel picks up, Jesus comes on the scene and his announcement is the kingdom's now here. The kingdom's now here and then the way Matthew organizes his gospel in chapters 5 through 7 is here's, here's a picture of what life in the kingdom's going to look like. Or you might say these chapters are, are a bit of a, a list of here's, here's what's going to mark kingdom citizens. It's no longer going to be defined as, as easily as perhaps geopolitical dividing lines. You're not going to be able to go to a new country and see people marked out by, say, the color of their skin or their voice, their speech patterns. Rather, kingdom citizens, those who come under King Jesus, are going to be marked by, and then you might just let your eyes drift across what comes in chapters uh, 5, 6, and 7. They're going to be the kind of people who embody these beatitudes. They're going to be the kind of people that live as salt and light. 
They're going to reject anger and lust and divorce. They're going to keep their word. They're going to keep their oaths. They're, they're not going to get even, but rather they're going to love their enemies. Chapter 6, they're going to give to the needy. They're going to be the kind of people that pray. They're going to fast. They're going to reject trying to hoard things in this life, but rather they're going to store up treasure in heaven. They're going to reject anxiety and worry because they know that the Father in heaven cares for them and feeds them. You, you see the point, right? Kingdom citizens are going to be marked out. They're going to be set apart, not by where they live or how they speak or the color of their skin, but rather by these inner virtues of the heart. It's also interesting for us as we look at these lists, specifically the Beatitudes, but you would certainly kind of fast forward throughout all these chapters to see how countercultural each of these are. One of the points that I made in both of the two previous sermons on the Sermon on the Mount is that the very things that Jesus commends for his kingdom citizens are the very things that we often work so hard to avoid. I mean, that's what makes the Beatitudes so challenging or so convicting. We run headlong after avoiding these traits, and Jesus says there's blessing there. That, that's where blessing is found, being this kind of person. This is perhaps proof to us of our sinful state. The flourishing life, the best life that God has for us, doesn't come naturally. There is no one in the room who naturally leans into embodying the characteristics that Jesus lists in these Beatitudes. The only way we get there is by the Spirit's power at work in us. But because of the indwelling power of God's Spirit, we can be transformed to embrace or to lean into these virtues that are spelled out in the Beatitudes. This is maturity. This is where blessing is found. Now, Verse 2 through verse 12 are more specifically inner virtues of the heart. Now, they have an outward orientation in terms of their engagement with others, but they're certainly not, not a task for us, like humility, blessing and persecution, being merciful. It has an outward orientation, but they're much more inner postures of the heart that have a spillover effect in the way that we relate to other people. But that, by the time we get to, uh, to verse 13, we have more specifically Jesus' outward orientation. The, the, what's the outcome of this beatitude posture in the world? And he, he says to his people this, this outward-facing orientation in verse 13, you're the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, we'll give about five seconds for you to get the tunes that you're humming out of your head right now, you know, the kids' songs that play as you read these texts, right? These are familiar images to us. But for Jesus, they crystallized the outward orientation of these kingdom citizens, what's going to mark their public posture in the world. They're going to be salt, and they're going to be light. 
I often think of C.S. Lewis's image in Mere Christianity at this point when he compares the human life to a ship. And he says we could come at the scriptures seeing this as instructions for the ship of how it might avoid sinking or how it might avoid collisions with other ships. But if you are a ship, the most fundamental thing to know as a ship is why you were on the water in the first place. Exhortations about how to avoid sinking or how to avoid colliding are of no value if you don't understand the purpose of being on the water in the first place. Salt and light for us crystallize the purpose statement for human existence. These are two dominant images that describe his hearers. And for us, it's important that we note at the outset, who are the you are to whom Jesus is speaking? When he says in verse 13, you're the salt of the light. Or the salt of the earth, the salt of the light. You are the salt of the earth. Uh, verse 14, you are the light of the world. Who are the, the you are? Well, clearly this isn't megaphone everyone. This is the, the hearers here. Those whom he has chosen to follow him. Look back in chapter 4, the call of the first disciples. So clearly this, this you are, the salt, you are the light, is a, is a subset of all of humanity, those who have he's called to follow. And I think more specifically, they are the ones who embody this beatitude way of being in the world. Those who are meek, those who are merciful, those who are hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who are persecuted, those who embrace and embody these virtues are the you are who embody, who have an outward orientation to be salt and light. I want to suggest for you three ideas that I think these images communicate, the images of salt and light. So if you're jotting some notes, because we'll debrief these, discuss these in our small groups this week, uh, three main ideas that I think the, the picture of salt and light communicate or were meant to communicate to the people of God. First, these were identity markers. They were first and foremost identity markers. They were ways to delineate who God's people were. Matthew, writing to a Jewish audience, picks up on themes that would have been common, particularly for his Jewish hearers, from the Old Testament prophets. Most specifically, he quotes extensively from the book of Isaiah throughout his writings. When he writes consistently that they would be, Matthew 4, 14, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Here, this is pointing to Jesus. In the land of Zebulun, in the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, a light has dawned on them. We're familiar with this language of Jesus as the light of the world who came in John's prologue to invade a sin-darkened world. Jesus is the light of the world, and through association with him, kingdom citizens will also be light. Jesus is here forming a new community and bestowing a new identity on them and declaring to them, you are, like me, salt and light. 
before we see these, command, these as commands, be salt, be light, we need to hear them as identity markers. You are salt. Now act like it. You are light. Now act like it. And this may seem like wordsmithing from the pulpit, but it is not, friends. This is the key to understanding all of the exhortations throughout the scriptures and to avoid legalistic behavior modification when it comes to our outcomes. Rather than seeing this as, I've got to work harder, strive more to be salt and light, we have to first and foremost see these as Jesus giving a grace gift to his people to say, you're not dark anymore, you're light. You've got value, you're, you're salt. I'm declaring something to you. And this seems to be what's going on in Jesus' contrast here when he says, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Or you're the light of the world. You're a city set on a hill like Jerusalem. You, you can't hide that. If you're a real Christian, if you're a real kingdom citizen, you can't put the light under the bushel. You can't stop being salt. Useless salt or hidden light. These are functionally impossible. Those who are truly his will demonstrate and manifest these qualities in ever-increasing measure. So lightless Christians is meant to be a mixing of terms that is fundamentally impossible. Saltless Christians, fundamentally impossible. You are, now be. Now the, the be part is important for us, the action. Okay? So their identity markers first, you are salt, you are light, and then their action. These are real, whole person, behavioral responses to Jesus' teaching. What is going to come after salt and light? And I, I would argue that what he says about anger and lust and divorce and oaths and retaliation and so on and so forth are all outworkings of how you are salt and light in the world. If you are organizing this like in, in an outline form, salt and light would be a main header, and what comes after this would all go, would all be indented underneath. How am I salt and light? Well, I have a different posture towards anger and murder. How am I salt and light? Well, I'm different in regards to lust and adultery. How am I salt and light? Well, I'm different, so on and so forth. So each of these are action-oriented responses where we prove our shared identity through fruitful living. Salt and light, if, if held up to us, are a clear contrast to the Beatitudes in that they are appealing for most of us. We want to be light. We want to be salt. But counterintuitively, if you want to be salt and light in the world, the path isn't to try to be salt and light. The path is to lean into the virtues of the Beatitudes. So make, tracking with me? So the path to get to salt and light isn't to try harder to be salt and light. But the path is by the Spirit's power to grow in the grace of the virtues of the Beatitudes. And in turn, the natural production is going to be a posture of salt and light. This is going to be the natural outcome. In, in a very real way, you're not going to have to work to be salt and light. If you're set apart by the virtues of the Beatitudes, this is just what's going to happen. So if you, you hear a sermon on salt and light, and it's like four points to be salt, and you're like, yeah, let's go be salt, I think you missed the point. 
The point is this is, this is the posture. This is the way God's people are going to demonstrate. You're not going to have to try to be salt. You just are, and you're going to live out that identity in the world. So if we think about this, if the virtues of the Beatitudes are countercultural, meekness, merciful, hunger and thirst, persecution, then the best way to influence culture to be light in a dark world is to embody those very traits, right? The best way to, is just to live out a countercultural being in the world, and you're going to naturally be salt and light. Now, Jesus is going to give us some caution as the sermon progresses that we don't, want to do, we don't want to live this way in the world in a way that showy points attention to ourselves, but it is a way of being in the world by which our salt and likeness is on display. And in turn, thirdly, salt and light are meant to communicate influence. They are identity markers, they are action-oriented, and they are meant to set God's people up for influence. These postures of being in the world would be deployed in real-life relationships. Jesus is going to say at the end of John's Gospel, as the Father sent me, so I send you. The sentness of God's people, they're going to be sent in the world to embody the Beatitudes in such a way that they are salt and liked. This is how we are sent. Now, commentators or those who read this text spend a lot of time talking about, well, what does, what does salt mean? What does light mean? I think if we reverse engineer this, it's a bit more helpful to us. Light in the scriptures is a far more pervasive image than that of salt. We see the biblical authors use the image of light, God's light, to communicate all sorts of different things. The light of God is the revelation that he gives his people, his instruction, his law is often referred to in the Psalms as a light to our feet. God's righteousness, his holiness, he's set apart as light, and in him there is no darkness at all. God's presence radiates as light. But also, Throughout the scriptures, the mission of God's people is also denoted by this attribute, light. Consider this from Isaiah 49. Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant and to raise up the tribes of Jacob to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. This is a bit of a mission statement for the people of God in the Old Testament. The nation of Israel was meant to be a light to the nations. You read the Old Testament and you think, man, the, the writers are focusing a lot on Israel. What's going on? Does God just, he's just chosen them and set them apart and saved them, doesn't care anything about everybody else. So that, that's not it at all. God is setting up, he's choosing, he's treasuring a people such that they would radiate his holiness expose the nations to his glory, that the people would see the dwelling of God and the people set apart. I often use the image that the nation of Israel was meant to be a shop window for the nations to see the glory of God. They're meant to walk by and say, oh, that's what a people looks like in whom or with whom God dwells. And now Jesus, as the new king, uses this same image to describe 
his kingdom citizens. What Israel failed to do, the kingdom citizens who embody the Beatitudes will now do. And this will not be limited to geopolitical dividing lines, but rather this will expand to all peoples, every tribe, tongue, and nation who will be grafted into God's covenant kingdom and will be set up as a light to the nations. You imagine hearing this as a Gentile here. Whoa, that was the marching orders for the nation of Israel, and now... The poor in spirit get to be like to the nations, right? This is a fascinating identity. It's a precursor or a parallel to the true light, Jesus Christ, who would invade a sin-darkened world with the light of the glory of God, and now kingdom citizens embodied with the Spirit get to do the very same. And then in connection to salt, Isaiah is going to use a very similar image. Throughout the Old Testament, salt was a sign of covenant promises between two groups of people. If you made a promise to someone, you would often symbolize the promise that was made by eating salt or sprinkling salt. There are numerous references throughout Leviticus, Numbers, 2 Chronicles, and Ezra. And salt, as we see throughout the Old Testament, God would use these vivid pictures to declare the nature of his covenant promises. Probably the most familiar to you is in the book of Genesis, when God makes his first promise to Abram. And he says to Abram, I'm going to bless you. You're going to be the father of many nations. What's the visual picture that he uses? He takes animals and cuts them in half and creates a path. Their blood fills the center. And a flaming torch, symbolizing God's presence, passes between these halved animals in a way of declaring, if I break my promise, let me be like these animals. And in a sign of God's unilateral faithfulness to his people, he's the only one that walks the path. He says, even if you break your promises, I'm going to uphold my covenant promises. I'm going to keep it. And so you had a visual symbol of the permanence. Well, salt, salt does the very same thing. What is, salt is permanent. That's what it does. It has a preservative effect. And so as you seal a covenant promise, you eat salt or sprinkle salt as a way of saying this thing's going to stand up forever. It's going to be purified. It's going to be protected. Nothing's going to be able to take it away. And so we read in Isaiah 42, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. Speaking to Israel. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. The prophet Isaiah matches this salt and light image in describing the nation of Israel. He says you're going to be light and you're going to be marked as my covenant people. Light bearers who are marked by the covenant promises of God. Marked, set apart by the covenant promises of God. And now Jesus picks up that same image and says to these kingdom citizens, you're also going to be light bearers to the nations and in stunning beauty. You are going to be the fulfillment of the salt. You're going to be the picture of my covenant promises to the people that were made all the way back in the book of Genesis. You see this scarlet thread running throughout the scriptures 
where Jesus isn't introducing something that hasn't at all been mentioned in the scriptures up to this point, but rather he's stepping into, he's fulfilling the promises that God has made. In fact, that's the very thing he's going to say in the next paragraph. I didn't come to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill it. Everything that he had promised to the nation of Israel, he's now going to embody through these new kingdom citizens who are going to be set apart in a drastically different way. So you, image, act, and influence as those who are light and who are marked as my covenant people. And then perhaps the question is how? Like what's, that, what, what's the necessary outcome? Jesus ends with these words, let your good deeds, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So he says, let your good deeds, let your saltness, let your lightness affect people in such a way that your heavenly Father would be honored. Embrace your identity as salt people, as light people, as kingdom citizens in such a way that the Father is honored. Embrace your identity and put it on display. It's become common. I get to do a a number of weddings and the wedding introductions and the reception that follows the wedding. Kind of the common thing. That wasn't, that wasn't a part of Sarah and I's ceremony, at least not to that extent. A, because I'm never dancing into a room. It's just not how I roll. It's not happening, all right? Uh, B, it wasn't cool. You didn't hashtag your little cutesy wedding name, and you didn't dance into the reception. But you never see a couple come into the wedding reception after their identity has just changed, kind of like, dude, I don't know if I want to associate with that girl, right? Like, I'm not sure about that guy. They are flaunting their new identity. It is a joyful thing to live out an identity that's been radically altered. This seems to me to be what Jesus is running at. Flaunt your identity. Live it out in such a way that people naturally associate you with the Father. Where do you do that? Well, you, you live out this identity in darkness. And this seems to be at the heart of the problem, isn't it? I mean, from kids, we all have some issues with darkness. It's not afraid. I remember, I'm an only child, two-story house growing up, and I remember, man, I hated it. Closet light was on. I would sit at the top of the stairs and listen to my parents carry on their evening conversation. About 10 o'clock when the news went off, that's when the news went off at that time, it was, you know, my parents were going to cut off the TV and come, and I would every night sit at the top of the steps, wait for them to cut off the TV, and then run into my bed and pretend like I was asleep the whole way. Like, that's, that's just how I rolled, all right? You're just, like, whatever it is, there's something lurking in the darkness, And unfortunately, this seems to be the fear that pervades much of modern Christianity. The deployment of our saltness and likeness is meant to happen in places of of darkness. It's meant to. This is what John says in John 3. This is the verdict. Lights come into the world, but men love darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light 
so that it may be seen plainly what he has done, what has been done through God. So he says those who are in the light, those who are light people, have come out of darkness into light, and now they are once again deployed back into the darkness. So the worst thing we can do as sanctified light people is pluck ourselves out of the darkness such that light is only deployed in other places where light also exists. And this introduces a key tension that we've just got to wrestle with. What should our posture be towards darkness? Clearly, there are two tensions. There's the danger of leaning in too much. Leaning into the darkness and attempting to blend in and reflect culture in such a way that we lose our ability to call people to be anything different. This is a danger not only for individuals, but a danger for the church as well. In an effort to be radically cool, we lose the ability to be countercultural and call people to something else than what is normative for them in their culture. But perhaps the opposite danger plays as well. The danger of escapism. Like the little boy in the schoolyard who's been excluded from the soccer match and turns in tears declaring, I never wanted to play with you anyway. The church can have the same posture to darkness. We can take our ball and go home and never engage in the culture to which we are called to be deployed, where we're called to be deployed. And pout that, well, culture's just going to hell. I don't know what to do. And in so doing, Christians have regularly given up any attempt at influencing those arenas that are most antagonistic to the gospel. But friends, that is the very place that your light and saltness is meant to be deployed. Paul writes in Ephesians 5, You were once in darkness, but now you're in the light of the Lord. Live as children of the light. For the fruit of the light consists in goodness and righteousness and truth and find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of the darkness. Okay. Point one. But rather expose them. For it's shameful to even mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed in the light becomes visible for it is light and it makes everything visible. This is the tension. Don't have anything to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but be in the darkness in such a way that you can expose it with the light of God's glory and grace. Friends, I would encourage you in whatever settings you find yourself today to wrestle with the tension, where am I deploying the light, the identity that God has given me? This will require some active choices for you, both in the way you lead your family, in the way you steward your time, in the relationships that you have, we all have a certain bandwidth. And if we are not careful in an overly saturated evangelical culture, we can isolate ourselves from the darkness in such a way that we have no light-bearing effect on the very people that God has sent us. Living these beatitudinal virtues is good, but it is really good if it is lived out in the world where darkness pervades. Jesus was able to pray this in John 17. This is eternal life, that they know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Then verse 4, he says what 
he writes to his people in Matthew 5. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. I'm always struck by that phrase. It's been sticky with me this way. I've glorified you on earth, having finished the work that you gave me to do. Now, certainly, none of us are going to get to the end of this race and be able to say it is finished the way Jesus did. None of us are crying from a cross, it is finished, and satisfying the wrath-bearing substitutionary death that God purposed for his son. That's a once-and-for-all deal that only Jesus will do. But friends, we can finish the work that God has put before us. We can glorify the Father with the work that he's given us to do, and in fact, he promises he's going to be faithful to finish the good work that he has started in us. I don't know about you, but that's a question that I need to wrestle with. If, if life ended for me today, if my life was cut short in the theoretical framework which I operate, would I be able to stand before the Father saying, I, I was faithful to live out my saltness, my lightness, faithfully fulfilling the work that you gave me to do? I encourage you to wrestle with that question this week if you consider yourself a person of salt, a person of light, and wrestle with God's Spirit as to how that light would be deployed in a dark world. Let's do that for a moment before we stand and sing to conclude our service this morning as we pray. I would encourage you to pray on two fronts. First, thank God for His grace in making you a salt people and a light people these identity markers being grafted into the covenant kingdom are beautiful gifts of God's grace, not meant to be taken lightly. And then spend some time reflecting on the deployment of that salt and lightness. Asking God by His Spirit to grow you in the characters of the Beatitudes and to give you courage and boldness to make real choices about how you will deploy the light that God has given you. Our Father, we bow in thanks to you that we who were once in darkness have been plucked out of that sin-darkened state and shown the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That we who are here this morning who profess faith in you can say with confidence that we are citizens of your kingdom. We are salt. We, we are light. You've made us this by virtue of your grace. And we ask for forgiveness for the times that our actions demonstrate a 
putting that light undercover. Limiting the salty effect that our lives are meant to have on the world. Would you cause us this week to wrestle with questions about the deployment of our light? We want to be a people both here and everywhere who live to be a light for the nations, that your salvation would reach the ends of the earth. Would we be a people who finish the race well, glorifying the Father with the good works that you have put before us that we would walk in them? We ask that you would protect us from isolation, protect us from being a people who do good things around a bunch of other light bearers but never never deploy that lightness into a sin-darkened world. Would you give us courage and boldness to live out our new identity in a world that so desperately needs it? This morning, as we conclude in reflecting on you in song, would you remind us of the beautiful hope that is ours in Christ Jesus? And would you press into us a life of missionary obedience as a result? We ask that for Christ's sake. Amen.